0: Welcome to the House of Books. I'm Catherine, your host. Today joining me is Jeff Billington, author of Chicken Dinner News and Summer Second. Jeff Billington grew up on a farm in the Ozark Mountains of Southwest Missouri, surrounded by animals, family, and local lore. His adult life has included stints as a newspaper reporter, a communications director for a member of Congress, and working for environmental and advocacy nonprofits. He currently lives in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., but someday hopes to return to the Ozarks. His first novel, The Young Adult LGBTQ plus book Summer Second, was released in december twenty twenty two. Chicken Dinner News, his second novel, is a literary fiction work that released on june twentieth, twenty twenty three. Jeff, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Catherine. I love to get the opportunity to talk about my books, to talk about other books, and just to meet new people and talk to folks like yourself. So thank you.
0: Oh, of course. Of course. And I agree. I would love to talk about books too. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was because I have read both books and loved both books, they're very different except for the physical setting, the geographical setting. They were released like six months apart. Were you actually writing both books concurrently?
1: Oh, no, not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chicken Dinner News, I actually started like 20 years ago. And I worked on it off and on because, you know, life kind of gets in the way. And I was really young when I started. I wasn't very old, really, when I started working on it. So I didn't have a lot of life experience. And when it comes to writing books, life experience can have a lot of impact on on what they're like. I spent probably... 10 to 12 years just writing it off and on. It would sit there for probably, there's probably a two year stretch when I never touched it at one point. You know, it was just sitting there. And then I went back to it. Things would come up. I'd go back and forth. Finally, I I, I just kind of really settled down and I, I, I got it finished. And I sent it around to some publishers and to some agents to see if they had interest in it. And this was about seven years ago. And they were like, no, they're like, it's a great idea, but it's really rough which I think is a common, you know, if I had done something like going through a uh, beta readers and working w- in a writing group, yeah, that would have been, they would have been doing that for me, but I'm kind of a shy person in a lot of ways. And I didn't really want to put myself out there. Cause I feel like when you're going to beta readers and you're we're working with a writing group, you really have to open yourself up. And I'm not good at that. And so I didn't do that, but, I got some really great feedback from those publishers and those um, agents that that looked at it like seven years ago. And so I spent a couple more years just really honing it, really working on it. I got it to the point where I really felt like it was ready. And so I started to to send it back out to publishers and agents again. That was around the time the pandemic started. So suddenly I had a lot more free time and I was like, okay. I've finished this one that I've worked on for all these years. Why don't I write something new? And I had Summer's second written in about my first draft is written about four months. Mm -hmm. And then I spent about another three or four months, you know, doing the editing process on it for myself. And I sent that out. And about the time that I heard back from my publisher, Vine Leaves Press on Chicken Dinner News, that they wanted to sign me to publish that book. I very quickly heard back from a publisher for Summer Second. And I think the reason is, is it's a genre book. It's LGBTQ.
0: Um,
1: And so you have publishers that specialize on those books. And that's what I found for that one. Chicken Dinner News, like you said, they're very different. It's more literary contemporary fiction. And so it was going to a different type of publisher. And so it was completely random that they ended up being published that close together because they were, yeah, they were not written together at the same time. They were very much separated by time, and it's uh, kind of an odd story about how they they showed up on shelves basically six months apart.
0: The writing group thing, I'm all about that. I I agree with you. So I I do a little bit of writing and I did try and I thought I would put myself out there and go to a writing group. And I read a poem and here's how it went. Wow, did that just all like, did you just come up with that or did you edit it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, <clears throat> there's something like, called, con- there's something called constructive criticism where it's like, you know, you find the positive in it and then you're like, Hey, here's some things you could do. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> like, oh,
0: the young adult voice in summer second is just perfect. And I'm wondering how you had to if that just was a natural flow for you, or if you had to consciously go through and edit and edit that for young adult, the young adult audience, knowing that it's a genre book.
1: I didn't have to go back and do a lot of editing on it. Actually, I really just kind of stripped back my mind to what it was like to be 17, 18 years old. I remember those years very well. I I don't have a photographic memory, but I have a memory for emotions and a memory for events that stays with me very well. I can't tell you someone's name that I met in the past, but I can definitely tell you what my emotions were and how I was feeling around certain events. And so I was really able to focus on that. The hard part with stuff like that is, yeah, I can talk about being a kid in the 90s, but that book doesn't take place in the 90s. It takes place around 2010. So I did have to Think about that as I was doing it. I had to be like, okay, he needs to be a little bit more contemporary mm-hmm. than the time that I was growing up. That so, I, I did editing for that, but for the emotion and the feelings, I really think I was just pulling from myself and from my own memories of that time in my life.
0: It feels very true. Your depiction of those characters, just with the the words you use, which aren't a lot of words, really create characters that are very lovable, even the ones who aren't.
1: <laughs> right. uh, you know, yeah,
0: Tommy's got some stuff going on. Um, Jessica's got some stuff going on. And we recognize that without over the top descriptions of anything, we just recognize it. But just the phrasing is so beautiful. I was rereading some of it last night, you know, towards the end, and I don't want to give any spoilers. But when one character says to another, I haven't an, I I've, I've made this plan for our date tonight. That's such a simple and lovely statement it's it's just so real and that's just somebody sharing from the heart for our date here's what we're going to do
1: I remember doing that myself though I remember especially when I was younger going on a first date being like hey here's what I've got planned for so I think that is definitely where it comes pulled from that personal experience like you know when you're excited about that you know when you're excited about going out with someone for the first time that's kind of like where where that comes from Jessica, she was a she was a hard character for me. My first draft was not very sympathetic to her. And I think that's just because I was so focused on Asher, who he was and his story, that I wasn't giving her enough credit. I wasn't making her three d- dimensional enough. And I had a, a conversation with a good friend of mine, and I was telling her about what I was working on. And she's like, You've got to, you've got to give her a story. It's like you're hiding her whole backstory in it. You're not saying this is why she's like this. This is what's bothering her. And so that's how I created the backstory. But it's pretty traumatic. She has a traumatic experience. Yeah. And uh, hopefully I made gave her character some strength, though.
0: I think you did. And I could see in that beginning, Jessica was not particularly lovable. And I can see that she would be a hard character to write, especially knowing what we know about Asher. I appreciated having that backstory for her. It, it, she was really well fleshed out that way, and I can imagine that took some work to go back and kind of find that find that word doc and slide or whatever you were using, find that word there and just figure out where you're going to put that those events in there. You did it really well. And Tommy, we didn't really even need to hear it. I mean, who wouldn't know? Again, no spoilers, but <laughs> yeah. Um, you know he definitely had good reason, just his circumstances alone were reason enough and his level of security or insecurity was enough, so yeah
1: yeah, I think he's the character when you read the book, he's the one that's given the most advantage in a lot of ways, he's the one that has the most he he has the 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 uh the family structure that is intact. He has the family that has more financial resources, but he is the one, like you said, he's the least secure yeah. uh, because of the the shadows that are surrounding them all, you know, the the history, their family histories and how they're interconnected. It reminds me, you know, and it's been several years since the, we had the recession here, but I, I remember when that happened and people were talking about, well, the, the ones that are hit the hardest by the recession have the hardest time are people that have never been poor, people that have never financially struggled because suddenly they don't have anything. And it's like people that have actually gone through that, they're much more resilient because they know how to deal. When you don't have money, they know how to deal. And I think the same thing goes for us emotionally. If you come from a harder place, when things get bad, you know how to handle it. But when you don't have that and you have to face those difficult emotional decisions, you might have a harder time to do it because you just don't know how to handle it.
0: You, we talked a little bit about this through email about uh, Summer Second, about when it was released and when you said it, it would have been a very different book had you placed it in the 90s.
1: Yeah, to make it uh, um, contemporary with when I grew up, I would have had to have said it about 15 years earlier. Yeah. And I mean, I knew I was gay, but I wasn't going to let anyone else know. I realized, yeah, in a, in a rural area that would have been that would have caused all sorts of issues. And so I I just knew that it wasn't safe for me. Luckily when I got to college, that's a different experience. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you don't have the, the clickiness that you do in high school in college. My college was only about an hour from where I went to high school at. It was in Joplin, Missouri, which is mm-hmm. still a fairly rural, fairly conservative area, but it's yeah. still college. Yeah. And you still get a lot more freedom to be yourself there. And I didn't want those struggles to add to Asher's story. I didn't want that to be the focus. I didn't want it to be purely a coming out story. I wanted it to be a lot broader than that. That's just part of what's happening to him. During this summer between his junior and senior year, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more personal growth. There's a lot more just being comfortable with himself um, than just that. And I think if I'd said it in 1995, that's the only thing it would have been about that's the only thing it could have been about
0: i think what i really appreciated the most about the book besides the the interplay that i described earlier with the excitement over the first date was asher and his mom she was so imperfect and Mm -hmm. and she was not painted in a bad light and asher loved her and he defended her so much and I think that that was just a really um, heartfelt, real depiction of, I think, how that would go in real life and how it does go in real life.
1: And I, I hope I made it clear that she loved him, too. It's just that she had dealt with so much disappointment in her life. Mm-hmm. And she had self-medicated, you know, through, through alcohol. And I mean, people with a lot more money than she does do the exact same thing. It's not unique. Um, and, I th- and I think part of that just that he had seen that. He had always been there. He had always seen that she always tried. And that even when, even when the failure came, that, uh, that she was always striving to do better for him. I think she was the hardest character in the whole thing for me to write, actually.
0: Both of these books were set in white oak. And I had said before, boy, I really hoped that there was a sequel. Are you considering a cycle of books in White Oak? Are you doing more?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's my plan. I have, whether this actually ever comes to fruition, uh, you never know. I have, I think, four more that I would like to set in that area. Uh, There's one that I've actually started working on. It takes place about 20 miles from the town in the country. And that one, one actually, I'm kind of pulling from my great-grandmother. And it takes place in a rural church in the 1980s as that church is closing. And it's about basically loss of community. My great-grandmother played piano in a, in a country church for 40 years mm-hmm. until that church closed. And it was very much loss of community for when that her when that happened. Her entire life, ever since she'd been a little girl, had been based in this little country church that her grandfather had actually helped build. And I went to that church as a child, so very vividly, I remember how sad it was to leave that because it was like a way of life disappearing on that micro level. And so there's one that I'm, that's gonna be pulled a little bit more from real life that I wanna do that's based on that, though it'll still be fictional. I would actually like to revisit Asher, maybe have him returning back to the town about 15 years later or something like that, seeing what's happened. And actually I want the town to be better because uh, as Chicken Dinner News kind of gives hope to that town, Mm -hmm. it shows that maybe there's a a brighter future for it than uh it is in summer second um and so maybe he comes back to a better place a place that's moved along a little bit in the world and gotten a little bit better and then i have two more that i'm kicking around You, you mentioned how different summer second is from chicken dinner news one of the ones i'm thinking about it would be very different too it would definitely be more of a crime novel involving the kidnapping in the town so I, I realize they talk about writers shouldn't jump around through different genres too much, but uh, <laughs> and maybe it's a bad idea, I don't know. Um, but uh, I do have uh, a, an idea for someone coming to the town and and there'd be a whole circumstance like that that happens. So I, I I like writing about that town. I feel like it's I feel like it it's symbolic of a lot of small towns in the middle of the, of America. You know, I live in the East Coast now and everything's building. There's growth. People live everywhere. There's not enough houses. There's always more houses being built. But I think about 75% of the country that's full of little abandoned towns and empty farms. I, I just want to focus there because I think there's so much hope for a lot of those areas.
0: I love that. And, you know, maybe when Asher comes back, maybe he can meet Ryan.
1: Mm-hmm. Full circle.
0: Maybe they can be buds. That'd be cool. It would
1: it, it, it would fall into the timeline. Yeah,
0: it would. It would. You know, Stephen King, he doesn't really jump genres that much. He does, to some extent, fantasy mm-hmm. versus horror, but he's always around Castle Rock. Yeah. And you can, you can be the Stephen King of White Oak.
1: Sorry. <laughs> even, even when he blew, blew up most of Castle Rock and Needful Things. Yeah. <laughs> I remember right. That was there a scary all... book, yeah. I was yeah, good. yeah. I read a little bit as a child. Here and there, I would read books, but I didn't. I never read a lot. And Needful Things came out. It must have come out, what, around 90 or 91, I'm thinking. It must have been around then. I read that when I was probably, what, 15, maybe, 14, 15. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And my dad, someone had left it at our house, and I just picked it up randomly. Like I said, I wasn't much of a reader before that, but I picked that book up, and I read it in two days, and I've never put a book down since
0: he he was my summer he was all of my summers in high school and junior high he was and that's when i think of his books and summer reads i picture me in my room with like salem's lot
1: yeah i read the stand over summer vacation one year the full like the unabridged version of the stand i read that over summer vacation and i i actually remember that was the year between sophomore and junior year of high school that i read the stand because the next year, I read an entirely different book. Between in the summer vacation, I read *Gone with the Wind*. What did you think? Between, it actually, I, I, I very well liked it. Yeah. It was fairly easy to read. The story was consistent. Now, I mean, at the time, I wasn't thinking about how problematic, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, some of what's in it is, because you know, you get older and you're like, wow, that's pretty degrading toward African Americans in that book because it really is but it's still it's this sweeping story um and it's very vivid Scarlett O'Hara is a a a really well-written character
0: she's a badass Um, yeah
1: oh yeah no nonsense you know it's like she does what she has to she's a little unethical you know she's actually probably a lot unethical in a lot of ways because she's almost Machiavellian, you know, in like her approach to things, because she she knows what her goal is. And her goal is always Tara. That's what the goal always is, is saving the family home. And so yeah, it was like, I spent a summer reading that because that's a, you know, that's a big book. And growing up on a farm, like I did, I had lots of work to be doing that summer, too. So I wasn't able to be reading the whole time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that. Yeah, that's a good point scarlet o'hara is a good example of what you talked about earlier characters who grow up or people who grow up without want or without need Mm -hmm. and a lot of that story is her adapting digging radishes or onions out of the ground and eating them doing whatever she can to survive and people Mm -hmm. people who watch the movie just look at the saga you know of the south but there is some character development there too i read that book i don't know if you think of reading as escape at all i Oh yeah and i think one of the reasons that i did read so much was to escape i had a a fine childhood but i've always had a lot of anxiety and reading about something far removed from my current life was just always very very soothing when i read gone with the wind i was actually i had just left michigan uh, with my husband and we were living in wichita we lived there for a short while and we were staying with relatives and the relatives were very nice but I didn't have any privacy. So reading that book at night, that was my privacy. I left that house and went to Tara. I don't know if you listened to my last episode. It was very short. I talked about course correction. And just for anybody else who's listening who hasn't heard me talk about this, I have a a website that I started right before the pandemic. And it was great during the pandemic, but now it's kind of becoming more of a burden to me. I'm not a technical person. So I'm thinking about ending that website. That's painful for me because that website was my heart's project for three years. I'm wondering if you have had any experience with having to do a course correction in your writing or your professional life and how you dealt with that.
1: Oh, I've, I've, yeah, I've had that several times. There was a, a, a nonprofit I worked at for about five years and they were reorganizing the office and they were actually moving my position to Utah and I didn't want to move to Utah. Um, and so they, you know, they offered me a a severance package and all of that, but I really had to reevaluate what did I want at that point? What did I want to be doing career wise? Where did I want to be living? I, and It was tough for me. And to this day, I'm not sure whether I made the right decision or not, because I kind of stayed similar to what I'd been doing, but I had to change some other things in my life. And yeah, I, it's tough. I I did at that point, though, I made this decisions to do things that made me happier more. I was always pretty serious before that. I never spent money on myself to do things for myself just to make myself happy. Mm -hmm. And Part of that change was that I started doing that I remodeled my kitchen after that happened and you would think why would somebody who just lost their job remodel their kitchen and I'm like because it makes me happy I need to feel comfortable in my home I need to feel like my home reflects me and so that was like the first time that I started really paying attention to that and kind of listening to myself and that's carried through till today I wasn't taking many trips before then I do that now. I I get out there and I do things. Um, Luckily, I have a husband who very much likes to travel. And he's actually from Brazil. And so we've made very much a big point of seeing parts of the United States. Together, we have traveled to, I think, over 30 national parks now. Last summer, we flew out to Iowa, of all places, and we went to the Iowa State Fair And then we drove through Nebraska, Wyoming, North and South Dakota, hitting the national parks in all of those states. And that's stuff I wouldn't have done if I hadn't lost that job. I think I would have been a lot more, you know, cautious about, well, I don't want to spend money on this. I don't want to do this. And it's funny. It's like, I don't know why losing a job actually made me more willing to spend my money. But for some reason it did. So I love hiking, love being outside. Um, I love seeing all the wildlife. I don't know if you've ever been to Badlands National Park in uh, South Dakota. I think it's one that people kind of forget about. It's actually outside of Yellowstone. I saw more wildlife at Badlands than any other national park.
0: Was that particularly crowded?
1: Oh, my goodness. Not at all. Uh, Yellowstone was crowded. When I went to Yellowstone, it was like cars backed up. And it's like hard to, you know, luckily I I had hotel reservations. But even with that, it's like I remember... I got to the. I stayed at the old Yellowstone Hotel, one of the, the historical host, hotel in Yellowstone, and I had my hotel reservations. I didn't realize you have to have dining reservations there as well because there are so many people, and there's. It's not like you can go someplace close by and get something to eat because you're in the middle of the park. And I was just lucky that the um, the gift shop was open and they had like sandwiches and stuff. or I would not have had dinner that night. <laughs> but, but Badlands was different. Badlands, it's, it's nowhere near as busy, maybe probably because it's in South South Dakota. And there's so much to see there. Uh, And like I said, the wildlife was incredible. And we stayed in Wall, which, you know, I don't know, have you ever heard of Wall Drug? Oh, yes. Everyone should go there if they're there. It's one of those places that I would definitely recommend that people go just for the kitsch of it. But it is very much a tourist spot. It is, it's kind of like the, epitome of of what is a tourist trap Uh, but it's got an interesting legacy and you can just kind of wander around and look at all the stuff but I'll tell you on that trip the place that amazed me the most and everybody's surprised by this even people that have gone to all these national parks is Devil's Tower and that's in Wyoming and a lot of people remember it from Close Encounters of a Third Kind the movie you can walk around the whole monument and it was the smell of the ponderosa pine, and I was telling my husband, "I'm like, well, can we not have a cabin here just so I can smell this every single day? Right? It's it's intoxicating. It's just intoxicating. This beautiful smell. Exactly. we we've even we've even talked about getting a a camper trailer and traveling that way, just because it, it's easier to have your own place to bring with you. Sometimes I think, especially if you're going to do it a lot, but that's probably still. few years off in the future
0: listeners won't see this because this will not be a video podcast but your room is beautiful
1: (laughs) yeah this is my my little office here um i collect antiques and and i i restore antiques as well so this morning i was waxing up a little game table that i had purchased for like 45 dollars from the habitat from humanity restore that i have down the street from me and I had a strip it completely when I bought it it was black mm. not painted just the varnish it was aged right. so much that it was black and my husband he's like what are you going to do with that and I said I said I'm going to refinish it then I'll just sell it yeah and then I pulled off all the old stain or all the varnish sorry and I got down to the wood and it has this incredible burling in it where you see all of that and so after redoing it my my husband came out And I said, you know, I'm not getting rid of this, right? And he's like, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) I've got my barrister's bookcase back behind me where I have some of my books. And I've got a roll-top desk on the other side of me. The the roll-top desk I bought from a guy. He had it in his garage for $150. It was office surplus from the federal government. It would have been bought new around 1915, 1920. And it would have been sold as office surplus sometime in the 1950s, government surplus. That's, and so
0: anything mid-century is fascinating to me anyway. Mid-century fiction is my favorite, hands down.
1: Oh, you know, I'd probably read more of that than anything else. Actually, I, I have this slight obsession. I won't say real obsession with Los Angeles in the 1930s, to the late 1950s. I don't know why. I can't tell you why, but anything that takes place in that time period in Los Angeles, I want to read. I've never lived in Los Angeles. My parents grew up in Los Angeles, though, and I used to visit my grandparents there. Both of my grandparents grew up where I did in the Ozarks. My grandfather uh, had gone into the Army. He was in the South Pacific. After the war, he was not going back to being poor in Missouri again, so he actually stopped in Southern California. My grandmother grew up about 10 miles away from him, and she went out to California one summer, the summer after she graduated from high school. Within a day, she had a job and a place to live, and she met my grandfather, and they found out they had only grown up around 10 miles apart from each other back in Missouri, and, you know, they settled in Southern California. Gismet. And so, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 exactly. Though after, before I was born, my parents, even though they grew up in Southern California, they went back to the Ozarks to visit my grandparents, my great grandparents, mm-hmm. and they ended up buying the farm right next door to my great grandparents. And so that's how I ended up growing up in southwest Missouri. <laughs>
0: well, I feel like there must be a well-worn trail between uh, Missouri and L.A. just for your family. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And even my, my, my dad's family, um, his father was born in Oklahoma in the 1920s. They went out to California too, and they settled in Bakersfield. But it's like they went out in the '30s, um, where you just piled everything you owned in a car, and you went out there. And that's my, my dad, my dad's father. That's how he got out to California. Was like something out of Steinbeck.
0: Well, there's a book for you.
1: Yeah. Chicken dinner news: What happens to the old high school building? Where I went to high school at was the same high school my grandmother had gone to and then she graduated from. It was not a large building, but it was a two-story brick, very traditional-looking high school building. Not very large because it was a rural, a rural high school. It was in a small town in, in a rural area. But somebody torched that in the 1970s. And the story always was that they were mad at a teacher. It was a student that got mad at a teacher and set the building on fire. So I never went to that, to school in that building. That building was gone. I went in a 1970s flat, unimpressive, you know, looking school building that had no character to it. But there were lots of pictures around of what the old high school looked like. And, you know, honestly, that high school might not have been there when I went anyway because we have a bad habit in this country of tearing down. We don't like to save. We don't like to renovate. We don't like to give things new uses. We just tear it all down. And, you know, I don't know that that building would have made it anyway, because, you know, I think it was built in the 19-teens or something like that. And somewhere through time, someone went, ah, it's just cheaper just to knock it down and build a new one.
0: And, you know, that kind of comes through in Chicken Dinner News, tearing down instead of reuse and repurpose. And yeah. I won't give away any spoilers either, but that's we see it happen. It's happening in small towns all across the country.
1: And they have some beautiful architecture in small towns, beautiful old buildings. They've lost their industry. They've lost they've lost money. They've lost what was going into them. And when I was writing that book, I was very much thinking about those those lost little towns that are so plentiful. When I when I travel to other countries and and they'll talk about the United States, they always talk about the cities yeah, the cities are great. I'm like, there's great things in the cities. There's so much to do, but I'm like, they're just part of it. There's so much more. There's a lot of really neat things in the middle of the country that people just don't know about, that people need to experience. And this is also one of my complaints about this push that we should all be going into offices again. I was really hopeful that remote working would take on a bigger role than it appears to be taking on right now. Because I saw an opportunity for rebirth in a lot of our smaller towns in the country that could have given families, it could have given people like, you know what, I don't want to live in this suburb in this big city. I'm going to go to a smaller town where I can still work and I can still make a living, but I can have my kids grow up someplace a little bit smaller, a little bit slower paced, where they don't feel like they're competing so much with everyone around you. And I'll say, I think with Chicken Dinner News, I probably could have added less description about the town itself because I think a lot of that gets in naturally. I probably didn't need to be as effusive about my description, but I was really trying to create the town as a character in it too, though.
0: You were successful with that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you were. I remember I put a term in talking about the metal fronts on a lot of old buildings and towns, and I actually referred to that as the Mesker Brothers' fronts on them. I don't know that anyone gets what that is, but you know the old buildings that have like the metal, the columns and like the, just the details, like the metal details that are on them. Yeah. There was a a company called Mesker Brothers a hundred years ago and they manufactured all of that and they mass produced it. And so like, if you're building a building and you're like, okay, my building's 30 feet wide, let's say you could go to their catalog and you could actually order those pieces and they would ship them to you. And then you would just attach them to the building. And they're in so many buildings. You find a small town in America that is at least 120 years old. You're going to find a building that probably has Mester brothers someplace. I'm going to look for that. Yeah. That was a detail I wanted to add in. I don't know that I needed to. I don't know that it matters.
0: (laughs) Well, for people who know what it is though, I think that that is a good, a good anchor fact. You know, you're pulling in real
1: world elements. What I for what I like to read, yeah. I'm pretty varied, and I think that's one of the reasons why maybe I'm jumping genres a little bit in my books, from young adult to uh, more contemporary fiction, and maybe I'll do something different in the future. Is because I like to read different things myself, mm-hmm. and I think for um, a fictional area, since I do. I seem to be, you know, leaning towards focusing on this one, you know, fictional little town, at least for now. I, I think I wanna give it some diversity. I don't want every story I write about that town to be the same type of story. I want there to be a lot of diversity. And so I think that's kind of what I'm thinking with that. I don't know that I'll write another young adult book though. Yeah. I don't know that that I had that into me to go into that well again. You can see that. I was a very personal one to pull from. And so I don't know that I and I I, I like reading young adult books. I'll look at like a lot of the LGBTQ ones, too, because when I read those, I'm often thinking I wish they I wish they had these when I was young. Yes, I wish those had existed when I was that age so I could have read them is some are better than others. I, I've actually, I actually read one here. I just, I'm not gonna give a name because that would be mean. Mm-hmm. I really did not enjoy it at all. It got a lot of attention and I didn't enjoy that one but then I'll read another one that I'll just like absolutely love and think it's like the best thing ever. One that like several years ago, I read the the book, uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapien uh, Agenda which was made into the movie Love, Simon. And that one was excellent. That one was so well done. But yeah, I don't know that I don't know that I'll ever do another young adult book. Um, contemporary fiction, yeah, maybe a little bit of a small town crime. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that's what's going to be in my future. I even have a uh, an idea for uh, a little detective series. I don't know if anything will ever happen of it, but uh, I love my Agatha Christie and I, I love the fact that I can read Agatha Christie and it still feels relevant. I think those are my escape books right there. I think Agatha Christie is my escape book. Yeah.
0: So Agatha Christie's one of my favorite authors as well. And she's surprisingly funny. Murder at the Vicarage, that's told from the point of view of the vicar. And he is funny. His wife is (laughs) batty. He's trying to deal with his wife all the time who just won't, just she's different from him and won't leave him alone. And it's a funny book. And I do enjoy Agatha Christie as well. Another great old school mystery author is Dorothy L. Sayers. If you've read her, the Lord Peter Whimsey books.
1: No, I haven't.
0: Very good. Yeah, I really enjoy Agatha Christie a lot.
1: And that's a good escape. I agree. Yeah, it's a great escape. And and my my idea for if I were to do something like that, I would set it in the 1920s. I would set it in, I'd set it in the Ozarks, but I'd probably set it in some place like Joplin or Springfield, Missouri. And I would have, I think, a detective who was in World War I, who's also closeted and gay. So that would be like something he has to hide because it would be highly against the law, highly problematic. but that would be part of the undertone of the story when it would also be like a detective series. That would
0: add some great tension. Oh yeah. Coming back to your fascination with uh, LA from the 20s into the 50s, there is um, that would also be a great place to set a you know kind
1: of oh like- yeah. I watched a movie last night that Jeff Goldblum was in, and I think it is the shortest cameo I've ever seen him do in a film, and he's done a lot of cameos in films. He was only in it for, like, less than a minute in this movie. Um, It's called Asteroid City. Um, Oh,
0: yeah. What did you think of that?
1: I thought I I enjoyed it. Um, It's definitely not a plot-driven movie, but Wes Anderson movies are very seldom plot-driven. Yeah. Yeah. But there are so many people in that, but he pull, he could get them. I mean, you know, Tom Hanks is in it. Margot Robbie, who is getting a ton of fanfare right now uh, because of the Barbie movie. Scarlett Johansson is in it. Um, so it's just like full of people. And, and and they're just doing quirky Wes Anderson things. So I enjoyed it, but Jeff Goldblum only has about less than a minute of FaceTime in it. Though he oh, is yeah. still a pivotal, his, the character he plays is still pivotal, but he's only in it for about a minute. Yeah, you know, used to on the PBS stations when I was growing up, in the uh, the afternoons they would have a lot of those British shows. Mm-hmm. So like the Vic, Vicar of Dibley, and they would have like uh, Are You Being Served, and they would have all of those. And a little later they had a What Keeping Up Appearances, and um the judy dench one um
0: oh, yeah. as time goes by
1: Yeah, as time oh goes by gosh. yeah love yeah. that show <laughs> yep you know but still very very funny
0: i like those shows a lot i still um that's why i subscribe to acorn no more brit box because yeah. they raised their rate by a dollar a month and oh no no i'm not paying an extra <laughs> dollar but acorn I like. <laughs> yeah. that's that's twelve dollars a year
1: <laughs> right yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> not gonna do that that's gonna
1: eat in a- that, that's a book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's two ebooks. That's two ebooks.
0: Not going to do it. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed our conversation so much. Folks, remember the books are Chicken Dinner News and Summer Second. Both are available on Amazon. Uh, Jeff, where can people find you?
1: I've got a website. It's just uh, jeffbillington.com. I'm also on Facebook. And I think there it's Jeff Billington author. And then I'm on Instagram as well. And it's uh, JD Billington on Instagram.
0: Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you. So that's where folks, that's where you can find him. You can find his books on Amazon. So Jeff, thank you for joining me today. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did too.
1: Thank you. I had a blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All the kind things you've had. I said, I really, really appreciate it.
0: So thank you for joining Jeff Billington and me here at the House of Books. If you enjoyed the visit as much as Jeff and I did, please tell your friends. Also, please consider leaving a five-star review for this podcast. Those ratings move us closer to our goal, which is always to introduce readers to new books and authors and to share old favorites that you might not know about yet. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.